This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. Episode 101, I guess our celebrations are over. We're just moving right it's along. business as usual now, right? <laughs> business as usual is right. Yeah, but I think we actually have a really fun topic to talk about today. Something that at least I've been seeing pop up in my X feed, in the news channels, wherever you go to learn about things that are happening in the markets. And that is the intersection of AI and investing. I feel like you can't go anywhere professionally and not have someone reference AI, right? Whether they mean it uh, earnestly or just to kind of be a, a buzzword or a topic. And we've got a good friend of the Insecurities Podcast back uh, with us today who's written a pretty interesting uh, paper on analytics and, and where things may be going from an enforcement perspective. And uh, I'd like to say we probably have uh, Professor James Tierney now every 50 episodes or so. If we date back to his last appearance, that was episode 52 back in November of 2021, where we focused on gamification, right? A, a topic that kind of grew out of that GameStop and, and, and Robinhood discussions that we were having back in, in early 2021. It was a great time to, to chat with him, but we're happy to welcome the professor back here to share with us and give a brief update on his career. When we last spoke, uh, James was an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska College of Law, but in the fall of 2023 has joined the Chicago-Kent College of Law there in the northeastern corner of Illinois, where he continues to teach on similar topics in business law. For those of you who are not jumping back to episode 52 to rehash here, we'll give you a brief background on the professor. His research focuses on how law shapes the way that ordinary people in financial markets interact with each other. Professor Tierney is an expert in the regulation of broker-dealers, investment advisors, and self-regulatory organizations, or SROs, such as the stock exchanges. His research has been published or is forthcoming in journals such as the Duke Law Journal, the Nebraska Law Review, the University of Chicago Law Review, the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Business Law, and the Yale Law Journal Forum. His article, Investment Games, about the regulation of zero commission stock trading and gamified investment apps, was selected for the Harvard-Yale-Stanford Junior Faculty Forum in 2022. And prior to joining academia, Professor Tierney practiced in the SEC's Office of the General Counsel for five years and had a regulatory and appellate practice at Mayor Brown in Washington, D.C., as well as clerking for Judge Mary Schroeder of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Professor Tierney, James, great to have you back. Welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. Thanks for having me back, guys. Congrats on uh, episode 100. Uh, I'm happy to be at 101. I'm sorry to, I didn't realize that uh, 52 was the last one. That's right. I, I've, I've been missing, you know, the big round numbers. So maybe uh, uh, when when 150 comes around, maybe we can talk again. Well, yeah, you know, 153, 149. We don't want to give you the marquee spots, right? We'll find a way to make that round and, and to go from there. But And thanks for your continued support of the podcast throughout. We've really enjoyed your commentary on the background as we, we continue to push out these episodes and hear from some folks like you who are interested. Well, I am a very interested and enthusiastic uh, listener of the podcast. So thanks for doing what you do. All 
right, so let's set the scene a little bit. We want to hear what you've been up to and sort of what you've been studying or, or writing about. But as I said, we're going to talk a little bit about the intersection of AI and investing. In some respects, I think that picks up on themes that we talked about way back on episode 52, gamification, digital engagement practices, how firms or apps are using new technology to interact with investors. Things are shifting a little bit, though, I think. Just this year, we've heard uh, CNBC reported that JP Morgan is developing a chat GPT-like AI service that will give investment advice. The news cycle has kind of continued to pick up steam. A few weeks ago in August, um, Barron's said that your portfolio will soon be transformed by AI. It's true. And the Barron's article explains, quote, chat GPT software and other generative Artificial intelligence tools are muscling their way into the financial services industry and will be involved in both retirement planning and constructing investment portfolios, end quote. Last week, a Fortune magazine contributor said, I pitted chat GPT against a real financial advisor to help me save for retirement. And the winner is clear. The author Corianne Hicks observed, quote, chat GPT is changing the way people live and work. Some fear AI will take over, but I've come to think of it more as my super smart best friend. It helped me plan a prolonged trip to Thailand and settle an argument about why you should eat your sushi with wasabi, end quote. Uh, She went on to ask ChatGPT to figure out what she needs to do to retire by a certain age. The result of the AI versus traditional advice test, well, according to the author, if this were a speed test, chat GPT would win. It only took a few seconds to walk me through the math for calculating a nest egg. But when she asked chat GPT to interpret the data and offer practical advice for how to save for retirement, quote, things started to derail for chat GPT, end quote. Despite this somewhat informal study, it seems like we're going to see more of these products and services filter into the market. Just yesterday, Fox Business reported that the ChatGPT-powered portfolio pilot became the first non-human investment platform registered as an investment advisor with the SEC. And on top of all of this sort of groundswell in the AI and investing space, over the summer, the SEC released a rulemaking proposal that would impose new requirements that address risks to investors from conflicts of interest associated with the use of AI, things like predictive data analytics that some of these brokers and and investment advisors are rolling out. So this is exactly what we have asked James to come and talk to us about. He just wrote a paper that touches on the SEC's rule and, and some of the implications. So I will, I'll shut up now. And Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about the professor's paper? And, and it's one of those things, Kurt, we often joke or, or speak seriously about some of the names of speeches and titles of, of topics and articles that we deal with here on Insecurities. James, mm-hmm. uh, this is one of the best titles that, that we've got, and, and I'll, I'll quote it here. The SEC's data analytics rule and the Netflix problem in securities regulation. I mean, I can't think of a listener who's not already looking (laughs) for a link to this paper. You will see it in the show notes for today's podcast. Uh, The article, quote, examines the transformative role of data analytics technologies, such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, within the financial advisory industry and the regulatory challenges they present, end quote. Professor Tierney explains in the paper that, quote, just as Netflix uses algorithms to recommend content based on user behavior, financial advisory firms employ artificial intelligence and machine learning to tailor investment advice. While these technologies enable more personalized and accurate services, 
They also introduce new challenges and potential conflicts of interest where a firm's incentives may not align with the client's best interests, end quote. All right. So we obviously want to get into the, the paper and what James has sort of discovered through his research. But as I mentioned up top, there is a new rulemaking proposal in this space. So just want to give very high level. James is going to tell us more. But in July 2023, so just a few weeks ago, the commission approved a rulemaking proposal that would require broker dealers and investment advisors to address conflicts of interest that could arise from their use of predictive data analytics, some of the AI types of tools that we've talked about when they're interacting with investors. The proposed rule is designed, among other things, to prevent firms from placing their interests ahead of investors' interests, which is a phrase that I think we've heard in some other contexts before. Chair Gary Gensler is a big fan of the rule. He said, today's predictive data analytics models provide an increasing ability to make predictions about each of us as individuals. This raises possibilities that conflicts may arise to the extent that advisors or brokers are optimizing to place their interests ahead of their investors' interests. If adopted, he says, these rules would help protect investors from conflicts of interest and require that regardless of the technology used, Firms meet their obligations not to place their own interests ahead of investors' interests, end quote. Of course, as is often the case these days, not everyone on the commission is a huge fan of the rule. Commissioner Person, a statement on the rule, said, quote, The best thing I can say for this proposal is that it serves, perhaps unintentionally, as a mirror reflecting the commission's distorted thinking. In that mirror, you will see the commission's attitude toward technology, which is not neutral, but hostile. It reflects the commission's loss of faith in one of the pillars of our regulatory infrastructure, the power of disclosure, and the corresponding belief that informed investors are able to think for themselves, end quote. So I don't know what it is about this rule, Chris, but everybody seems to have hot takes, um, you know, including the professor's title for his paper. Um, it's certainly interesting. And maybe that's Commissioner Purse at her best. I don't know. That's a really good poll quote, but um, can't wait to learn more. Before we get into kind of the rulemaking implications and all those things, let's get down to what I like to call the Kung Fu, right? Before many years ago, we talk about the matrix, right? And, and people using technology to learn Kung Fu. Professor Tierney, we want to talk about what is this Kung Fu? What are the data analytics tools and models that are being referenced here in your paper and in the rulemaking? We talked, like we said at the, the start a couple of years ago, about digital engagement practices and gamification. Are we in the same ballpark here? Or is this an extension of that or are we in a different lane? Yeah, so I think of this as kind of the evolution of the SEC's thinking that started with gamification and digital engagement practices and has resulted in a new framing of the problem. So just to bring us back to around the last time we talked, it was after the meme stock craze in spring 2021. And around this time, there was a fairly widespread, at least for by the standards of, of security, Securities regulation, a widespread recognition that free and easy trading plus splashy, engaging user interfaces could be affecting markets more broadly through their effects on investor behavior. And around this time, we saw these congressional hearings and a series of public speeches by Gensler and other commissioners. And if you listen, especially to Gensler around that time, he's focused a lot on algorithms and data analytics, right? The use of personalized 
technologies in ways that generate agency costs and conflicts of interest between financial advisors and their clients. I understand Gensler had some focus on this issue when he was at MIT after his service at the CFTC. So it seems to be kind of a pet project of his, but it's kind of a roundabout way of closing the loop on the gamification and digital engagement practices issue. The commission released a, a request for comment on digital engagement practices in broker-dealer and investment advisor regulation in fall 2021. And we've had a fair amount of radio silence since then, until this summer, when we learned that the SEC had been thinking about this under this new framing than digital engagement practices. Data analytics, or what I call the Netflix problem. That Netflix problem, Professor, right? I think that's something most of us can relate to. You can imagine a, a time where you're watching an exciting thriller on Netflix that concludes and you're looking for the next idea. And a great quote from the paper that, quote, while a bad Netflix recommendation might sour an otherwise chill evening, the implications of algorithmically driven financial advice are more serious, end quote. To me, that's like watching that thriller and then getting a recommendation for a documentary on locomotives. Right? Are we heading in the wrong direction? It might ruin the chill of your night, but from a financial perspective, such recommendations might be a little bit more impactful, right? Tell us about that. The Netflix problem is meant to be a mirror on what our use of technology says about our preferences and how we interact with firms out there in the world, right? So one of the things that I find most charming about Gary Gensler is that he's a real ham in the public eye. And so he loves disclosing that Netflix long ago pegged him as like a rom-com guy. And the idea here uh, with both the Netflix and the investment side is pretty simple. In lots of domains of our lives that are increasingly technologically mediated. We have to deal with these technologies that take some input, shape it, and then try and sell us something. Personalized content as a reason to subscribe to Netflix, right? They know that you're gonna like the thriller and not the documentary on locomotives. That's a reason to subscribe to Netflix if we think that their tailored personalized recommendations are better than Peacock or Hulu or whatever, right? And similarly, the Twitter or other social media algorithms that are designed to keep our eyes on the screen, to engage us, showing us ads, you get the idea. So we see this emergence of similar technologies in financial markets, and that's no accident because businesses find that they're better able to optimize their operations or their practices to do whatever they're selling. And in the financial advisory industry, that means selling financial advice. It could mean selling the advice better, or it could mean providing better advice. And so think about all the different ways that technology might allow financial advisors to do those things, to offer more services, have a, a chat GPT mediated either chat bot for kind of probably not for customer service, but for investment advice, making predictions with greater accuracy, stuff like that, right? So advisors can customize investment recommendations based on investor behavior, risk tolerance, financial goals, market trends. And from a perspective of 
client service or of, of competition, you might expect that's what the market would want, right? You want the advice that is more tailored to your circumstances and not the generic advice, right? So the more that advisors use technology to customize investment recommendations, the more there are possible implications of either bad advice or advice that might be shaped by hidden conflicts of interest, right? Mm. Uh, to, uh, to the question's point about the how a, a bad Netflix recommendation might have a fairly small consequences for us. From an individual perspective, getting bad financial advice is bad, but conflicts of interest also drive questions about how capital is allocated, and that implicates much broader macroeconomic questions about how financial advice plays into the capital formation processes that it is supposed to be serving. So just to, uh, to finish up on that, I'm being a bit vague about the scope of these technologies, but you could think of lots of ways that technology, algorithms, or methods might you know, shape investor behavior and lead to some of these consequences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is why I like to, and I, and I hope they're not listening, but I like to go into my wife's Netflix profile and my kids and search for like sports documentaries and nature shows just to keep the algorithm on its toes. Because otherwise, it's just going to be all like Love Island all the time. Educate not for the kids. Content. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you bring up a good point, right? I think it's one of the things that maybe people fear about AI is this potential to shape behavior, right? Maybe a couple of years ago, Gary Gensler wasn't a rom-com guy, but I, th I think we all know that he is now, and, and maybe that's because of Netflix, I don't know. But I mean, t tell us a little bit about how this technology has the potential to actually change the way people behave. Yeah, so Kurt, at the top, you talked a little bit about, I think, some straightforward examples. You have generative AI and similar technologies that might help out with retirement planning or investment portfolio selection, asset allocation, security selection, right? To the extent that we have technologies that have outputs that are then presented to clients, right? You run a simulation and it tells how much this portfolio versus an optimized portfolio is likely to generate over 30 years after kind of 10,000 Monte Carlo sim simulations or whatever, that's presented to clients. And it might not be a recommendation, um, but it might be enough to get them to change their mind about whether they're going to make some change in their account or something. So that's the, I think, straightforward way. More indirectly, algorithms have a huge role across the financial advisory ecosystem. And the SEC's new rule is more focused on, I shouldn't say more, but it is focused on shedding light on all the ways that the more indirect use of algorithms or models or technology, a very broadly defined concept, right, might shape the information that advisors give to their clients or how they're doing it. All right, so you've explained sort of how AI and other technologies are maybe pervasive in the financial industry more broadly. I mean, the point about the potential to shape behavior is well taken. I guess I'm just curious about the the risks, right? Like maybe nudges can be a bad thing, maybe they're a good thing, I don't know. But I mean, it seems like some of these platforms, some of the applications out there very straightforwardly offer to help you form better habits, offer to help you shape your behavior. You know, I think 
Acorns is one of those. They're trying to help you save a little bit. Michael Lewis's podcast, Against the Rules, featured another app that was supposed to help people save and over time teach them to make better decisions for how they manage their money and how they think about their personal finances. So I guess I'm just trying to sort of balance these concepts in my head. So can you kind of help me with the risks? Yeah. You talk a little bit about nudges, and I think the SEC has agreed that nudges are not necessarily a bad thing. And in many cases, they might be preferable to stronger, more paternalistic interventions, right? So to your point about technology that's designed to help promote good investment behavior, right? putting someone in who's opening a brokerage account into kind of like a default allocation, right? Hey, do you want to try this like 60-40 portfolio or like a three index fund portfolio? That might be like a really good thing. In fact, like mandating retail investors have just like a super simple index fund portfolio might well be the best thing we can do for kind of promoting retail investor kind of agent, well, I shouldn't, shouldn't say agency, but outcomes in, in financial markets where people People just have different levels of sophistication and whatever. That's never going to happen, but you could think of nudges as ways of pushing people into what are hoped to be more pro-social kind of outcomes. There are lots of problems with nudges, right? It, it is also a little bit kind of anti, or it is a little bit paternalistic, right? There are problems with consent and whatever. But you also ask about risks, and I, I think that it's the flip side of what we're trying to accomplish by nudging people into good behaviors. And it's illustrated by the what we talked about earlier as the SEC's roundabout way of coming to this rulemaking. If you looked at the original release and request for information on digital engagement practices, you might have noticed that it was kind of split in two parts. There was the broker-dealer side and the investment advisor side. And it reflected a little bit this regulatory concern that there were good uses, the kind of pro-financial education, financial literacy, nudging people into better and investment behaviors, kinds of optimistic uses of digital engagement practices that Kurt was talking about. But then there was, I think, the SEC mostly characterizing it on the broker-dealer side as the, the kind of risks and harms associated with maybe over-trading. And so just to, to more directly answer the question, the SEC in their release on this data analytics rule talks mostly in terms of agency costs and negative externalities, right? So what are the investor protection and kind of market protection angles that might be implicated by the use of some of these technologies? And the SEC says, quote, or they say, Retail investors, quote, may not have the knowledge or time to understand how firms' use of these technologies can generate conflicts of interest in their interactions with investors. And if these were left unaddressed, investors could be harmed by less efficient investment strategies. They could incur agency costs. It could also adversely affect formation of capital as investors might choose to invest less or might lose confidence in capital markets, unquote. My sometime co-author Ben Edwards has also written about how conflicts of interest can shape the processes by which capital is allocated, something we talked about a little bit earlier. And the SEC also identifies the possibility of kind of third-party negative harms, as well as this fundamental conflict of interest. So the risks, Kurt, are mostly about how conflicts of interest are going to potentially shape investor behavior. So in response to the rule that came out from the commission, or the proposed rule that came out from the commission this summer, 
What is looking to be accomplished, James, in, in moving forward from that perspective? Yeah, so the rule tries to bridge that gap between the what the SEC seemed to signal as like the good and the bad parts of digital engagement practices. And so what it essentially does is target conflicts of interest in the use of certain kinds of technologies. The key regulatory obligation is for broker-dealers and investment advisors, in addition to their other existing obligations, to eliminate or neutralize the effects of conflicts arising when the firm or its associated persons use or could potentially use covered technologies in investor interactions. And that that's like three concepts that I think are worth briefly discussing. We can start with the eliminate or neutralize idea. This is that you have some, well, if you have a conflict, you have to do something with respect to, to that conflict. You eliminate, you neutralize. It doesn't give us the option to just disclose, right? Under this duty, firms are going to be required to identify the conflicts of interest they have with respect to these technologies and then determine if they place the firm's interests ahead of investors. And if those conflicts exist, then firms are going to need to eliminate or neutralize their effect. The second concept I think worth discussing is covered technologies. It's very broadly worded to include any technology, function, model, method, or process that optimizes for, predicts, guides, forecasts, or directs investment-related behaviors or outcomes. We talked a little bit about gamification. The rule proposal would explicitly, quote, encompass design elements, features, or communications that nudge, prompt, cue, solicit, or influence investment-related behaviors or outcomes from investors. It's broader than gamification, though, and I think worth acknowledging how potentially broad it is. Commissioner Ueda suggested that like an abacus or a calculator might count. I was skeptical at the example, but on reflection, think about how you might use a calculator to calculate present value of some future dividend payment, right? I think to the extent that you used that technology to shape an investor interaction, even if it wasn't a recommendation, um, it might be considered a covered technology. It doesn't mean you couldn't use it. It might just require you to think like, what are my conflicts of interest with respect to this abacus or calculator? None? Okay, well then that's the end of it, right? All right, so that's the second. I think the final thing we're thinking about are, you know, or this, is this concept of investor interaction. Like in Reg BI, you have a focus on retail. And so investors are those who use financial services primarily for personal, family, or household purposes. And the proposal says that interactions with these retail investors would include engaging with them, communicating with them, including by exercising discretion with respect to account, providing information, or soliciting investors. So that's a very broad scope for investor interactions as well. And it explicitly says it would capture communications that aren't considered a recommendation under Reg BI, but are, quote, designed to or have the effect of guiding or directing investors to take an investment-related action, unquote. All right, James. So, I, I mean, a couple different times, a couple different ways, you, you sort of compared this rulemaking to Reg BI. We've talked about how it covers interactions with retail investors. You've sort of compared the eliminate or neutralize requirement under the new rule with Reg BI's eliminate or disclose requirement. So, I mean, at the end of the day, is this really just BI for AI? 
<laughs> That's a great catchy phrase. I want to see if I can get it as a vanity license plate, but it's certainly <laughs> certainly better than the Netflix problem. Kurt might in... beat you to it, but definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's copyright pending. Yeah, yeah. well, we, we're, we're in different states, so I think we can both do it. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think it's maybe not a bad way of thinking about it. There's this investor protection concern about the provision of investment advice to retail customers, and RegBI regulates this traditional bo broker recommendation building on well what, what I take are well-established principles that include, well, principles about what is a recommendation, right? And building on this duties of disclosure under circumstances where perhaps clients have come to expect those disclosures. And the data analytics rule kind of does something else, covering the ways that advisors can have conflicts with clients outside that traditional recommendation context. The, the SEC investor advocate has talked a bit about this problem, how the landscape of financial advice has changed and the, there's this concern with some ways of using digital engagement practices or interactions that don't rise to this level of recommendations but might still affect customer behavior. And we're now four years into the adoption of Reg BI. We're starting the last, this is a kid, we're talking about the last year of preschool right before kindergarten. And there's a growing recognition, I think, among regulators about maybe its limits. My understanding is that the SEC's much celebrated first enforcement action under Reg BI probably could have been brought under suitability standards and, and lots of grumbling about after all the work that has come into compliance, not clear what kind of teeth Reg BI has. We also saw last week the Mass the Massachusetts State Supreme Court, their their SJC, uphold the longtime state securities regulator Bill Galvin's fiduciary rule, partly on grounds that the financial advisory sector has changed and there's been this new recognition that maybe Reg BI didn't do enough uh, to protect investors. I don't know if that means that the data analytics rule is the right solution to it, but it does seem to be getting at this idea that Reg BI left some gaps that needed to be filled. I mean, I think if, if we think back, I always described Reg BI as sort of a suitability plus rule, right? So it was sort of building on existing principles that were in place within the securities regulatory framework. Now maybe the data analytics rule builds on Reg BI. So we're sort of piling principles or rules on top of principles or principles. And I think that's one of the reasons, as I mentioned earlier, Commissioner Peirce doesn't really seem to like the rule or, or Commissioner Ueda doesn't really seem to like it either. They seem like they would favor some of the principles-based rules that are already in place. They just simply don't seem to think that the data analytics rule is necessary. They think it uh, reflects hostility towards technology. They say it's overly prescriptive. In your paper, though, James, you argue that these concerns are, are misplaced. So why is that? Oh, man. So I, it's tough, right? Because uh, no one wants to be the spoil sport that comes into industry and say, you, thou shall not use, you know, covered technologies in investor interactions. Mm -hmm. And I, you mentioned prescriptiveness, and I think that's maybe in the eye of the beholder. Certainly critics of more regulation, and I, Commissioner Peirce and Commissioner Ueda are, are thoughtful critics of what the SEC does when they disagree with, its, with the, their fellow commissioners. 
And certainly kind of critics of more regulation are going to say that some new regulation goes too far, right? And so I don't really want to kind of quibble in that sense. That's a, maybe a disagreement about is this prescriptive in the sense of like requiring something that, that shouldn't happen. That's a separate policy question. There is, you mentioned building principles on principles. And I guess the question is what the rule requires of firms, right? It doesn't say you can't use this technology. It doesn't say you must use it this particular way. And so I, I'm a bit I'm a bit skeptical of this idea that that it is that this kind of regulatory technique is too prescriptive. And in fact, the way this works out when the rubber hits the road is something we've seen in a lot of other areas of securities law lately. So I think of this in um, AML, anti-money laundering compliance, the proposed reg best execution as part of the equity market structure reform proposal had a similar technique where firms are expected to take take an approach that looks at your that the at the risk specific to your firm, not saying here's what you know all firms can and can't do. It's take stock of where you're at, look at where your conflicts are, and then eliminate or neutralize them, right? And maybe it is we can have the debate about whether it's too prescriptive because it requires elimination or neutralization of conflicts rather than, say, disclosure, which was the preferred regulatory technique in Reg BI. You might think this is too prescriptive because the we're basically stamping out the use of these technologies in ways that put firms' uh, interests ahead of their clients. And maybe so, although I think the investor protection policies of the securities laws do empower the SEC to say, you know, we're going to stamp out this particular kind of conflict of interest. I think it's interesting because from a, a technology standpoint or thinking about how one might actually implement this kind of rule, I wonder what firms would do, right? So there seems to be baked in an assumption that um, firms, through whatever their AI technology is, are going to somehow prioritize the sale of higher revenue investments or products, right? I mean, I think that's just sort of the baseline. They think that's what's going on with this technology. But I don't know how you fix that and comply with the rule, right? If all you do is create technology that is sort of agnostic as to the fee structure of the product, well, I don't think that's a good answer, right? Because maybe we should be looking at the cheaper product. If you create a tool that deprioritizes the higher fee products or your firm's own proprietary funds or products, I mean, maybe you have a different kind of problem from a BI or a suitability standpoint, right? So I guess I'm just, I'm wondering how maybe in the final reckoning this should be crafted. Can we be either more or less prescriptive and still achieve the ends of the rulemaking? Yeah, I mean, I guess partly it's a question of a disagreement about what the appropriate ends of the rule are and whether we should be adopting them. You mentioned this idea, or you mentioned, I think, two examples of kind of performance fees and, and algorithms that maybe kind of don't put uh, a firm's own kind of high revenue offerings more prominently than others. And those are two areas where I think the SEC in its proposal would have said like, yeah, one is it's okay. It, you have de properly dealt with, eliminated, neutralized your your conflicts if you aren't making your own offerings more prominent or whatever. That strikes me as kind of not something. I'm a bit of a, a realist about this and strikes me as not the kind of uh, technology that firms are going to be wanting to adopt, right? So I, I am sympathetic to the idea that this is going to uh, channel the adoption of certain kinds of technologies in ways that disfavor, you know, showing customers or uh, disfavor algorithms that generate outputs for 
for investors and customers that are going to put the firm's interest ahead of, of the client, right? And that does seem to be what the what this is aimed to be getting at. You mentioned how this works when the rubber hits the road. I mentioned this idea about firm and firm risk-specific compliance programs because from an enforcement perspective, that it's not like anyone is going to come in and say, you had a conflict with respect to your use of this abacus with respect to this particular customer, right? It's more like, well, you had ChatGPT giving you something like payment for AI revenue, where they're giving you a cut in exchange for uh, vacuuming up all of the customer transaction data as a result, right? And so it's something like that, where if, if that's not even on your radar as a potential problem, that is a conflict that not only have you violated the conflict uh, duty, uh, but you've also perhaps violated the broader compliance requirement to like have systems in place to be thinking about these things. And ultimately, the SEC probably is trying to marry the substantive conduct rule with the compliance thing so that when they go in to do examinations, they can say, aha, you weren't really thinking about this conflict and there's your compliance problem, right? So I, I don't know, I don't know if that is the right approach here, but it does strike me as something that is more flexible than kind of a more prescriptive approach. James, getting back to the Netflix notion here in terms of what's recommended by the algorithm, one of the things, Kurt, you joked a little bit about before is the assignment of value to what's being recommended. Your kids may not benefit as much from watching romantic comedies as they do from seeing something educational and informative. And that kind of brought the question to my mind is how do we assign value to what should be recommended? I mean, from a financial perspective, we usually rely on what's in the best financial interest of someone utilizing these. But you could imagine, as we've talked about ESG in the past, there may be other motivations for what is in the best interest of an individual investor. When I think about Netflix, right, and, and James, you talked about this a little bit earlier, right? The, the platforms, whether they be X, formerly known as Twitter, or some of the other social media out there have a motivation to keep you on the platform. I think about the spring and summer of 2020 when the entire American population learned about a gentleman in Florida who owned a bunch of exotic pets, right? The Tiger King was the most popular Netflix documentary out there and everybody got recommended that, right? Because of the shared kind of interest in that. Yeah. I, I don't think it's too hot of a take to say there probably wasn't a lot of intrinsic value to any of us in learning about the Tiger King. Uh, so, so to me, it's really that assignment of value. Are there other elements here besides financial interest of the end client or investor that might work its way into these algorithms that might lead to some thorny questions down the road? I dispute that we didn't get anything out of Tiger King. <laughs> <I said it. laughs> no, in, in my classes, I use that meme where he's like, I am never going to financially recover from this. And yeah. at least for a few years, when people had like remembered the show, That's right. it got a few laughs. Stop. Yeah, yeah I'm, it's, I'm just kind of interested, right? Netflix is recommending stuff to keep you on the platform. Are the algorithms recommending things that have their own motivation, right? That may not violate financial duty. Yeah. I actually took it, I took it a little bit differently. What your question made me think about is, will these tools start filtering, I'm going to say recommendations, but that's a loaded term. So <laughs> maybe products into the mix that maybe aren't tailored to your particular interests, but they just happen to be really popular with people that look like you or maybe globally, right? So let's say there's a hot new ETF 
that tracks the price of Bitcoin. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> Is that just going to start popping up in everybody's list of things to buy? Because they're like, well, it seems like most Americans who are between the ages of 28 and 44 really are into crypto. So we're going to throw this in the mix for everybody. I mean, that's where mm -hmm. I'm. I mean, Chris, I think it's a yeah. fascinating question, right? Is how do you balance what should just basically be your risk profile, your investor questionnaire and get a very tailored basket of securities for you versus what maybe AI is learning more globally about investors or people that look like you. Yeah, the Tiger King ETF, if you will. There is a real potential problem with AI and algorithmic bias, right? The concern that I might like some Netflix show because I am a 39-year-old uh, white man in the suburbs of Chicago might not actually have anything to do with my own preferences or what I want to prioritize. And in the same manner, I probably am not going to be the world's best customer for the broker that starts putting kind of crypto, the new crypto spot future ETP as one of my products, right? On my home page because they found out that like the people who are on the same train in the morning as me like all are trading that ETP. And I actually think that is one area where the SEC in focusing on the conflict of interest is perhaps trying to get out ahead of some of the more maybe pernicious concerns, right? I, in Chicago, right, cannabis is legal here, right? And the my Twitter feed is now full of, maybe this says more about me as like the guy who goes to fish and Grateful Dead concerts, but like my, my Twitter feed is like full of these like cannabis shop ads, right? Admission against interest. But you know, if that, if the consequence were what we see in other areas of algorithmic, personalized, tailored content, uh, presentation, right? That the people know that I have this kind of cookie uh, or kind of data uh, tag that's following me around with all of my transactions throughout the economy. If that's going to start feeding me recommendations for like cannabis ETPs, that really starts to look like other areas of law, uh, not of law, but of, of kind of uh, the economy kind of colonizing uh, investment recommendations in service of a particular kind of of revenue stream. And it, it, that's maybe implausible. I actually don't think it is uh, that implausible. Uh, but you know, you, you could certainly see similar things at issue with respect to A-B testing of how often people trade after they get a push notification on high volatility days or things like that, right? So I think there are lots of ways that, uh, you know, the use of technologies that take in financial behavior as input and then try and shape it to get you to trade more or do whatever in service of someone else's revenue. I do think that's fundamentally what the SEC is after here. Well, yeah, and back to that rule proposal itself, instead of just reminiscing about our favorite parts of the Tiger King documentary, are there any other kind of open questions, right, from the summer's uh, proposed rulemaking? Do we see any future issues down the road? 
uh, as it relates to the details there? Yeah, so as a proposed rulemaking, this is just kind of an, an opening salvo in this fight about, a fight that I'm sure will last several years about what is going to happen with, with data analytics. And what will probably, what I would expect to see is over the next couple weeks, some more comment letters coming in. And then after some months, we'll get something that looks more like a final rule. I, I say all of this because the SEC in its proposed rulemaking asks lots of open questions. In my mind, the biggest open question is what it means to eliminate or neutralize your conflicts, right? And that is, I think, where I'm probably going to be spending some more time thinking about that as I prepare a comment letter. But, you know, the certainly folks who kind of are worried about how things might shake out with the interpretation or shaping of investment interactions or how we're talking about technologies or whatever, the SEC, they have a great staff and they have the thankless job of wading through all of the comment letters. And if you have something useful, I, I suggest you, you say something, because lots of open questions. I don't mean you guys. I mean, I mean listeners, right? Yeah, and, and any listeners with something to say, feel free to reach out. We'd love to have you on the podcast to share some of those things with our <laughs> listenership. And speaking of recent episodes and, and some of the folks we've had on, in episode 99, we talked with Nick Morgan, who was one of the advocates and leaders out there considering rulemakings generally and how they may impact certain avenues of the market. So definitely go back, listeners, and check that out if you haven't. James, we're interested kind of in this current environment of rulemaking for the SEC. It seems like everything that comes down the pike might face a, a challenge from a legal perspective on, on the implementation of any of those rulemakings or their appropriateness. Do you see that uh, happening here or maybe being overturned on appeal with any legal challenges that come down related to this specific proposed rulemaking? Yeah, I think it's certain to be challenged. It is harder to put odds on whether it's likely to be overturned on appeal or how likely. I will say all of this comes at a time of like a rising anti-administrative sentiment in the part of the federal courts. And the SEC in particular has faced the kind of the brunt of those headwinds, especially before the Supreme Court and mostly in the kind of enforcement program over the last decade, right? We had a bunch of cases, Gabelli, Kokesh, Liu on sanctions. We had the Lucia case on the administrative law judges last term with pre the Axon case and pre-enforcement review of constitutional challenges in federal court, now Jar the Jarcasey case before the Supreme Court. And all of this is, I think, enforcement that's relevant because when push comes to shove, the SEC has to be able to enforce the securities laws one way or another, whether that's in its in-house courts or in, in federal district court. You mentioned rulemaking, and certainly the SEC has faced um, some headwinds, not just before the SEC, before the Supreme Court, but certainly for, for rulemaking before the D.C. Circuit, where a rule like this, I think, is certain to be appealed. The D.C. Circuit has long been kind of skeptical of SEC rulemaking, especially with respect to the economic analysis. And actually, just this week, we saw that that court overturn the SEC's denial of the grayscale spot bit, Bitcoin ETP on grounds that, um, you know, the denial was arbitrary and capricious. So I don't like to put odds on the 
how doctrines like reviewing agency rulemaking are likely to play out in a particular case. There, there is, I think, like the crass, if you look at the grayscale decision from earlier, there could be like a crass legal realist prediction that there are certain judges, maybe the ones associated with the Federalist Society, who are going to really dislike the SEC's rulemaking here. I actually think that kind of like crassly political prediction does not fully capture the extent and scope of the D.C. Circuit's antipathy to the SEC in rulemaking challenges. I have great confidence in the work of the SEC staff, especially the general counsel's office, like their legal policy folks who are working on the rulemaking and appellate handling any challenges. But boy, if I were the SEC general counsel, I would have to have like I would have to be super confident in DIRA's cost-benefit analysis and hope to draw like the exact right panel of judges before the DC Circuit for it to all go my way, like all the stars aligning. Um, because otherwise, to your point, everything gets challenged and increasingly, it's not clear in an age of doctrines like the major questions doctrine review, when we're gonna see courts intervene on kind of new bases. So I am. I think that this is kind of a, an interesting and appropriate use of the SEC's rulemaking power, but I am not an Article III judge, at least not yet. So we, we will have to await some further developments on that front. Well, I, hopefully one day, maybe Open solicitation, 250, right? <laughs> we'll have judge tyranny on maybe. I don't know. We're going to have to keep this podcast going until you're in the black room. Yeah, Sen- Senator Durbin, call my office. Excellent. Well, I know we could spend a lot more time talking about where we think this rule is going, but uh, for those of you interested in some of the details of of Professor Tierney's paper, please check it out. Uh, You'll see the link to it in the show notes. That again is, quote, the SEC's data analytics rule and the Netflix problem in securities regulation, end quote. Uh, Professor Tierney, James, uh, always great to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on this episode. We look forward to uh, some more discussion on this pretty unique and interesting problem. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a blast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, James Tierney of the Chicago Kent College of Law. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast however you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Seriously, send this episode to a friend or colleague immediately. (laughs) And thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership.
These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.